Um, all right, so we're going back into the book of Mark. We're in chapter 14, uh, and we're going to be doing 14 verses 26 through 52. I am calling this sermon weak but willing. Weak but willing. Um, and I, I'll start off with this little anecdote. When I was probably 11, 10 or 11, I played peewee football. Um, and I know when you see this hulking physique, you go, oh, yeah, he must have been a linebacker. No. Um, so I played peewee football, and I played quarterback. And my team wasn't very good, okay? Um, let me just give you some stats. So some of you sports guys, you'll appreciate this. My season in peewee football, we actually never scored a touchdown, okay? We never scored a field goal, Okay? We never scored a touchback. Do you score on touchbacks? It's been a while. We never won a game. Um, I don't think that I actually ever in a game completed a pass. I don't think I ever completed. I know I threw some passes. I just don't think anybody ever caught them. Um, there was a game, and I remember this because it's seared into my memory and it, and it has haunted me ever since, where we lost the game by more than 80 points. The other team just started goofing around on the field, just started lollygagging around the field, and we still couldn't score. I think the most yards that I ever completed in a game in terms of running, you know, um, I, think I, I think I ran about six yards one game, and I felt pretty, pretty proud of myself. Um, now, here's the bizarre part of the story. Are you ready? At the end of the year, the coach said, Brent, and I'm the quarterback of the team, the team that never won, the team that never scored. Brent, we want to give you the, the MVP, most valuable player. <laughs> and I'm going, really? Okay. Now, that says two things. One, it says that I was bad, but the rest of my team was really bad. We were not a good team. And the other thing it says is that the coach was saying, Rome, look, you're not a good quarterback. We don't recommend you come back out for us next year. But you know what? You're willing to get out there and try. You're willing to get out there and work and hustle. So they gave me the MVP. Um, my friends did mock me for that for quite some time. But, but the point is, no matter the, no matter the fact that I was absolutely dreadful as a, as a football quarterback, I, did, I was willing. I had a lot of, like, spunk. Like, I'll get out there and do it. Um, that is what I love about this passage we're going to read today is that Jesus and the disciples and the whole scenario promotes this idea that though we are weak, if we are willing, willing to step into what God has for us, willing to step into the purpose that he has designed for us, it doesn't matter if we're not good, if we don't think we can do it. It doesn't matter if we're sinners. It doesn't matter if we're lousy. It doesn't. All he wants is us to be willing. So let's jump into um, Mark. Before I jump in, I just want to tell you there are three themes that I think this passage evokes. And I'm going to kind of break them up according to the scripture. It's a long passage. Um, but they are this. They evoke the, the, the themes that arise in this passage are the power of the will, the power of the will, the weakness of the flesh, the weakness of the flesh, and the courage of purpose, the courage of purpose. Okay, let's jump into Mark chapter 14. Uh, verses 26 through 52. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out 
to the Mount of Olives. Okay, remember, Jesus had just had Passover dinner with his disciples. He had just expressed this crazy idea to them that he, in fact, was the Passover lamb. He said, my body will be broken and my blood will be spilled out and poured out for you. And they finished this dinner. It's late at night. They're in Jerusalem. Remember, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pilgrims from all around the world in Jerusalem. Um, they're at a borrowed house. Um, his uh, tradition says that they're at Mark's house, the writer of the gospel when he was a young man. Um, we don't know that for sure, but they're at Mark's house. They're not all going to sleep over at Mark's house. So they walk out of the house and they walk, they wade across the, the creek, the Kidron Creek there, and they walk into the Mount, uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is right at the base of um, the Mount of Olives. And it says they sung a hymn. It was traditional for the Jews to sing uh, so throughout Passover, sing Psalms 113 to 118. So if you ever want to know what Jesus and his disciples were singing at this time, look up the Psalms, 113 to 118. Um, and the Psalms were, the, you know, they used to sing them. We read them, but they used to sing them. And so they were singing. Um, at the end of Passover, they, they would sing the last three Psalms, 115 to 118. So um, they're singing these Psalms. They're walking out of, the, out of Jerusalem. They're crossing the creek. They're going into the garden. And Jesus said to them, verse 27, You will all fall away, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is quoting Zechariah chapter 13, which is a sort of a messianic, a beautiful messianic passage. If you get a chance this afternoon, flip back to Zechariah, read chapter 13. He says, you know, clearly he's saying, I'm the shepherd. I will be struck. The sheep will be scattered. Verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, and I love Peter. He's got a lot of hubris. He's got a lot of, you know, will. <laughs> um, he says, uh, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, Jesus, you say the, the sheep will be scattered. Even though everyone falls away, I will not. I will not fall away, says Peter. Have you ever known anyone who sort of overstates their, their abilities? You know, I had a, a buddy in high school, uh, and he was always getting into trouble, but he was always making these massive reformations. Brent, you know what, man? I am, and he, 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 he was addicted to chew. He loved dip. Um, uh, and, you know, it was, it was every week that he would say, you know what, man, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm never going to chew this. I'm never going to do this again. Or he would go out and he would drink too much. And he would say, yeah, I'm never going to. And, you know, of course, it never worked out. I mean, he would always go back. Um, I think it was Lincoln that said, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. Um, Peter hadn't learned, Peter hadn't met Lincoln. Um, Peter says, everybody will, will run, away, run away and be afraid and flee, but I won't. And Jesus said to Peter, verse 30, truly I tell you this very night, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Not once, not twice. Three times you will deny me tonight. Peter says, no, emphatically. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. All the disciples said, yes, 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 yes. We will not, we will not deny you. Um, remember an hour ago when Jesus said to them, last week we talked about this, during Passover he said, one of you is going to betray me. Remember? And they all said, is it me? Uh, is it me? And now they're all saying, it's not me. It's not going to be me. I won't deny you. 
Um, And they went to, verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Gethsemane, there's a, this, is, this is an actual picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, these are olive trees. Gethsemane means oil press. So this garden still exists. You can go over to Jerusalem today. You can go into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus and his disciples were going to camp out that night. They were going to go camping out there because that's where they were staying. Um, there were probably other pilgrims from other areas that were in that same place. They were probably camping out all over the Mount of Olives. Um, and that's an actual picture of, of the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, to me, when I imagine that, sort of at dusk, with a little bit of mist, with a little bit of darkness, with those trees, um, you kind of get, a, you kinda get a, a picture of what it must have been like that night. Verse 33. And Jesus took with him, so they all went to the garden. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, three of his closest disciples. And he pulled them aside. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Throughout the book of Mark, we have seen Jesus in various moods, in various states. We have not seen him greatly distressed and troubled. This is the first time where we see Jesus greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, he says to Peter, James, and John, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I mean, that's a huge statement from Jesus. I am so sad I could die. I am so despairing right now I could die. We don't see Jesus in the Gospels talking like this very often. He turns to his three closest guys and he says, I am so sorrowful even to death. Remain here, he says, and watch. And one of the other Gospels, he says, watch and pray that you be not led into temptation. He wants them to pray with him. He's, he's deeply sorrowful. Next verse is even more compelling. He says, and going a little further, he went a little further away from them. He fell on the ground and prayed. And this is what he prayed. He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. This is his prayer. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is walking into his moment of execution. He is about to be killed. And he throws himself on the ground and he begs the father. And he uses this emphatic double language, the Aramaic Abba and then the Greek father puts it together, this very personal, this very emphatic, this very persistent, this very intimate way of saying, Father, Dad, Father, Father, please let this cup pass from me. But, nevertheless, let your will, not mine, be done, he says. So I want to stop just for a second and summarize this. He's got his three closest guys. He's on the brink of of his execution, he steps to the side, he's praying, he says, let this cup pass. Uh, one of the passages says, and then he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. This, this emotion, this distress, this, this sorrow, this, this despair that we're seeing him at this moment is such a unique experience for us as readers and, and for him. He was overcome with grief to the point of death. Um, and in the meanwhile... 
Peter, James, and John, and we'll get to what they're doing, but they're, they're near him. The rest of the disciples are further away. They're probably sound asleep by this point. And remember Judas. Judas, we will find out, has sort of slunk away in the dark and is off doing what he has chosen to do. Um, the power of the will. The power of the will. Jesus talks about his will. I don't want to go through this, he says. Let this cup pass for me. The will or the volition is that sort of conscious, that, that conscious uh, process by which you and I decide what we're going to do. I will walk over there, and here I go. We consciously decide what it is that we're going to do, and Jesus' will is fighting against what's about to happen to him. Um, I'll tell just a very brief story. We used to have, we, we lived for a little while in a little town called Lancaster, Ohio. We lived on the property right by the church. My dad was the pastor there. And I don't remember if somebody gave it to us. I can't imagine that we bought it. But we had a little horse. It was a little horse. Some people called it a, um, a colt or a, a, what do they call it? What, what do you call a little horse? Pony, Yeah. But I insisted that it was not a pony. It was a horse. This horse and I had equally powerful wills. The problem was his body was stronger than mine. And what, what he would do, his name was Star. Star would break out of his little corral, and he would be out on the property. And it would be my job at like nine to rope Star and get him back into the corral. The problem was Star didn't want to be in the corral. And there, I remember very distinctly, it was a Sunday afternoon. We used to have church on Sunday morning, and then Sunday night, and then Wednesday night, Tuesday night prayer meeting, Friday night youth service, you know, you know. Um, so, uh, so it was a Sunday afternoon. Mom was getting the girls' hair ready up at the house, and Star got loose. And so I go out, and I get the rope, and I rope Star, and I get this rope around Star's neck, and... This was the foolish part. I thought, you know, I can pull Star. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap this rope around my arm several times so that I will have a very strong pull on Star. Well, I, I suppose you can imagine what happened. Star decided to go that way. And uh, all I know is that at one point my mom was looking out the window and saw me bouncing across the field as Star dragged me along. But anyway, our will, our will can be very, very powerful. Our will can be very, very strong, and we can become very entrenched in what we want to do. Um, Jesus, we ta- we've talked so much about him being divine, but Jesus was a man. Jesus was fully man. Fully God, fully man. He was fully man. That means he had a human will. What do you think Jesus felt, Jesus the carpenter, when he was making something and he hit his, ham, his thumb with a hammer. You know, Jesus was a man. Jesus would get angry. Jesus had emotions. Jesus had a will. When he was hungry, when his blood sugar dropped, and he's been teaching all day and there are people all around him trying to get something from him, do you think he didn't get frustrated? He got frustrated. He got angry. We don't know what he looked like. But we know he was a man. The Bible says that he was nothing special to look at. Paraphrased. He was nothing special to look at. 
We don't know if he was tall, short, fat, skinny, balding, long hair, if he had the 80s rock band hairdo that he has in most of the pictures that we see, or what he was like. You know, we, we have no idea. But we know he was a man, and we know he had a, a, a human will. Um, the other thing we know about him is, you know, when I try, when I try to think... When I try to think of what he was like, and we can't really know what he really was like as a man, but when I try to think what he was like, you know, have you ever seen Deadliest Catch? You know the guys on that show, Deadliest Catch? Who would they follow? You know what I mean? I feel like Jesus must have been a person of strength, of power, who was commanding, who had a presence, who was a leader. You know, he was a man. Um, He had... Emotions. He wasn't a robot. He didn't. He wasn't some ethereal being that floated across the surface of the earth. He was a manual laborer from a small town. He was considered by many of his contemporaries to be an illegitimate child of Mary. He went. This is a guy who walked. He was a poor man who lived in a small town who was sort of despised by a lot of the people in his small town. This is who he was. He was a guy who went through a lot of stuff just as a man in his life. Um, he was passionate. He, was, he would get angry. He would feel anguish. He would feel annoyance. He would feel anxiety, desire, despair, disgust. He would feel excitement, fear, grief, joy, loneliness. The whole gamut of human emotions that you and I feel, he felt those. He had a sense of humor. Jesus had a sense of humor. You can tell by the way he sort of mocks the religious elites at the time. He'll call them something like, you know, he would say, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look great on the outside, but in the in, inside you're full of dead men's bones. I mean, he had a, he had a stinging, clever wit about him. Um, he called, uh, called him at one point a brood of vipers. You know, he called Herod a fox. He said, go tell that fox that I said, you know. Um, he had a will. He had a powerful human will. Let me ask you this. When does your will come out for you? When do, when do you start to feel entrenched in your will? What circumstances in life? For us, for Rebecca and I, it's when we're in the car and we have a debate on what direction to go. And we both have very strong views about which direction we should go. We did this the other night. It was fantastic. And she kept saying, see, I got you right there. But I really wish that we had one of those GPS maps that show you the route that you actually took, you know. Um, but anyway, um, we have, we, we both have a strong will. In fact, everybody in my family, Jameson, Lincoln, my mom, all of us, if you want to get bossed around, come to our house because everyone there is a bossy pants and they will all tell you what to do. So we're all bossing each other around. In fact, I remember when Rebecca and I were dating before we got married there was this point where she kind of like pulled back, you know. We had a wedding date set, and she said, well, you know, I don't know if I'm ready. And she called off that date, okay. Um, and I was like upset, and I was like mad, and I was nervous. And so I, I did what any good, you know, fiancé would do. I called her dad. I called Phil. And I call her dad, and I go, Phil, listen. You know, what's going on with your daughter, man? Like, help me out. And I think that Phil is going to say, hey, you know what, man? Just relax. It's all going to work out. It's all going to be cool. Don't worry about it. I'll talk to her. I think Phil's going to be really right there with me. You want to know, know what Phil says to me? Phil says, 
Hey, man, I, I don't know what to tell you, man. She's always been really stubborn. You know, she's stubborn as a mule. Good luck. I don't know what to say. Maybe it's not going to work out. Who knows? I don't know. Good luck to you, man. I'll catch you later. I'm like, thanks. Thanks, Phil. That was good talk. Appreciate that. Um, but we both had to eventually, our wills had to start to soften towards one another. Um, Jesus, with this incredibly strong will, this passionate, fiery will, doesn't want to go through what he's about to go through. A couple of reasons why. First, he says, let this cup pass from me. That means throughout the Old Testament, anytime you're talking about drinking from the cup or referencing the cup or let it pass from me, the cup is a reference to the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm about to bear the sins of the world and the wrath of God against those sins. I'm about to drink that. I'm about to, not only the physical pain, not only am I going to be beaten and scourged and my scalp will be pierced with with, uh, thorns, not only will a cat of nine tails come across my back, will my arms, my my hands and my feet be pierced with nails. Not only am I going to do that and, and hang on a cross to the brink of exhaustion and death, but I'm going to bear and drink this cup of God's wrath. And I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it because it is just going to be excruciating. And we know that, um, that in fact, when he was on the cross, we'll, we'll get to this, but there was a point on the cross where he even stretched out his arms and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He just felt so lonely and, and, and afraid and separated from God. He, was, he knew that he was going to drink this cup and he didn't want to do it. And yet he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus knew that by surrendering his human will to the will of God, he was, he was taking on an infinitely powerful will. He's taking on the volition of God. He's laying down his human will and taking on the, the will of God. If you want a powerful will, if you want a sense of strength and power, surrender your will to the will of God. Because if you are manifesting God's will in your life, nothing can stop you. Your will can be stopped. Your will can be halted. Uh, halted. By an obstacle, God's will cannot. And if you are enacting God's will, if you are manifesting God's will on earth, um, you can't be stopped. How do I do this? And I'll just briefly go through these, and we'll, someday we'll get into the will of God for our lives. But the question we always ask is, how do I know God's will? I mean, you know, how do I know the difference between my will and God's will? And these are just a few thumbnail um, points that I'll just quickly get to. Examine the Scriptures of the questions that you have about what you should do with your life can be answered in the scriptures. He's already communicated his will explicitly to us there. Develop a relationship with God through prayer. Spend time with God in prayer, getting to know God. That's how you understand his will for you, is to get to know him. See what he wants from you. Seek counsel. Go to other people. Wise, good people, people you respect. Talk to them. And say, well, you know, here's a decision I'm facing. How do I approach this? See what they say. Listen to them. Be willing to, be willing to lay down a little pride and, and listen to someone else. That's one I just preach to myself about pretty much every week. Practice submission to God. We eventually can habituate the will of God. If we keep doing the will of God over and over and over, it actually gets easier. 
because it becomes a habit. So practice it. Trust that God will lead you. Trust that God will lead you. If you, uh, if you don't think that God is going to lead you, it's very hard to do this. But if you can develop trust, Scripture says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He will direct your life. And then finally, step into your purpose. At some point, you act. At some point, you do. You step into it. You take the risk. You might be weak. You might not be great at what you think you're going to do. Step into it. You will become infinitely powerful when you surrender your will to the will of the Almighty God. Okay, let's move forward. Uh, Verse 37. Jesus came and he found Peter, James, and John sleeping. And he said to Simon, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit, he says, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to get back to that in just one minute. And again, he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. He could hear the men coming through the woods. That uh, is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You talk about your, your, your best guys letting you down at the most important hour of your life. Jesus is racked with this sense of dread, and his three closest guys are passed out, sound asleep. And he comes and he says, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to talk just a couple minutes about the weakness of the flesh, and I'm not going to talk long about this because this is something we already get, we already know. Um, What I love about that passage is that Jesus reprimands them gently by saying, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? But he's not only talking to them at that moment. Jesus is also talking to himself. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Jesus' flesh, as we just discussed, doesn't want to go through this. But his spirit is willing. I love that there's a parallel between the disciples and Jesus. And, of course, us. Um, Fill in this blank for your life. I'm never going to again. How many have ever said that? I'm never going to do this, that, or the other thing again. And yet, we know that we have done that thing again, right? If you haven't, talk to me. I want your secret formula. Or, I vow to do X every day. I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to exercise every day. I'm going to get up and run five miles every day, right? The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Um, We know this about ourselves, um, but I'll just give you just a few little stats. 33% of the people who have a gambling, pathological gambling problem, within three months of treatment, they relapse. Now, that doesn't mean they relapse and then they're shot, but they do relapse, and then a lot of them start to come back and, and, and... abstain again. 50% of people who abuse alcohol after they stop and go into treatment, 50% relapse. 
Within one year of treatment, people struggling with obesity typically gain 30 to 50% of the weight they lost. Our flesh is, is weak. All of us. Even Paul says, that which I would do, I don't do. And that which I would like to do, I don't do. <laughs> Wait, did I say that again? And that which I don't want to do, I do. The flesh is weak. Jesus finds himself, uh, finds his men asleep. He gem- gently reprimands him. He says, the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Jesus says, but here's the great thing about Jesus. He knows this. And he says, I forgive 70 times 7 every day. When we are weak, when we stumble, when we fail, which we all do, we get back up and we pursue him again. And he is faithful and just to forgive us for all our sins. Know that the the flesh is weak. Now, that doesn't justify our tumble and our stumble and our fall. It doesn't justify it. It doesn't, you know, should we continue in sin to let grace abound? No. But if you sin, don't go down the shame spiral and find yourself away from everyone else, separated from everyone else, and incapable of coming back to God. You know, Jesus says, look, I'm going to forgive you. And as people of God, we need to have that same attitude. We need to be able to forgive folks when they mess up and bring them back into the fold, nurture them, strengthen them, encourage them, stir them up to good works, and set them back on the right path. Amen? How do we remedy the weakness of our flesh? We're going to read on, and we're going to... We're going to read on to verse 43. Immediately, while Jesus was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. It's a mob that have, that have come with Judas, led by Judas. Verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, Judas said to them, the one I will kiss is the man. It's dark. It's in the, it's in the garden. They can't see who's who. Judas says, just follow me. I will go up and I will embrace the one who you need to arrest. Uh, And he goes up uh, and the one I will kiss is the man sees him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And the soldiers laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. There again is Peter. We, didn't, we don't hear it in Mark, but John tells us that the guy who struck the guy's ear is Peter. Um, don't give a fisherman a sword. He doesn't have good aim. Um, but uh, cuts off the, his ear, and then in the, other, in the other gospel, we learn that Jesus actually healed the man's ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But, he says, and this is, the, this is the, the line, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him. All of the disciples left him and fled. And a young man followed him, followed Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. They seized that man, that young man. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That's a, it's a strange passage. And, and that, that last line, um, the scholars think that that may have been Mark himself, the young man, Mark, who, whose home they had Passover at, who was a we, you know, wealthy young man who wasn't one of the twelve, but he followed Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, the linen cloth indicates that they were a family of wealth, and uh, he may have you know, seen Jesus and his disciples leaving, wanted to follow, followed, and then um, when they grabbed him, he took off running. Interesting uh, little detail there. Um, 
Let the scriptures be fulfilled. To me, this theme is, the, the theme that arises from here is the courage of purpose. Do you ever wonder what you would do in a dangerous situation? Do you ever, I know that a lot of times guys will have this like, especially when you're younger, you have this fantasy of like, this dangerous situation arises and suddenly you act heroically. Anybody ever do that? Or is that just me? Any guys? No. Um, that is just me, right? Oh. Now, I used to, when I was a kid, there was this, there was, I remember one time very distinctly, I was in my room, and I was looking in the mirror, and it was like, uh, you know, a western town in my mind, and I was in the mirror, and I was going to pull my six-shooter and get the bad guy, and in my, in my imagination, in this fantasy, so I would do it, and then bang, and then he would shoot, and I would shoot, and then I would sort of tumble back, and then I would fall to the bed, and then, you know, I'd get up, and I'd, I'd, that wasn't quite right. I'm going to try that again. And I would walk through this thing over, and then suddenly I hear, like, a snicker, like a little, <laughs> like that. And I look out, and my door is cracked, and my mom is looking through the door, watching me go through this thing. Or I was just a little bit mortified, not totally. Um, we have this idea in our mind that if confronted with a dangerous situation we would step up, we would act heroically, right? All of Jesus' men fled in panic. Jesus said, let the scripture be fulfilled. What does he mean by that? He's basically saying, look, I'm going to fulfill my purpose on this earth. I could call down 10,000 angels, wipe out these men with swords and clubs, but I'm going to let the scriptures be fulfilled. I'm going to drink the cup. I'm going to do the, the thing that God has called me to do. I'm going to step into my purpose. Unequivocal knowledge of your purpose. When you act in your purpose, you will be steeled against the obstacles and the opposition that comes against you. In life, when you are walking in your purpose, when you are doing what God has called you to do, you are imbued with a courage that you don't otherwise have. When you enact your purpose in life, your fears diminish your obstacles shrink, your pain becomes muted, your problems dissipate, your preoccupations dissolve, your worries fade. When you are walking in your purpose, when you're truly living out your divine purpose, your mind sharpens, your instincts, instincts quicken, your creativity blossoms, people begin to follow your lead, people listen to you. When you're living in your purpose, you become fearless. Have you ever known anyone to do this? When you know what you're doing, when you, there are probably moments in all of our lives where we go, I know precisely what I'm going after right now. And when you do, things dissolve. Distractions just sort of fade away. You know, watching these Olympians, you can see that. Suffering, sprained ankle, broken bone, you know, muscle soreness, whatever. It doesn't matter. They're pursuing their purpose. Every single one of Jesus' disciples in the garden fled. Why? Because at that point, they did not know their purpose. They didn't know their purpose. They had not been commissioned. They learned their purpose after Jesus' resurrection. When Jesus was resurrected, he, and, and they realized who he was, they fully realized who he was, that's when he said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Then, all of the disciples, except John, who probably died a natural death, but every single one of them walked through the fire. Every single one of them were martyred. For their cause, for the cause of preaching Christ, because at that point they knew their purpose and they were going to fulfill it and they weren't afraid. So on this night, before they knew their purpose, they ran and fled and scattered and hid in the hills. 
But once they got their purpose, they were fearless. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go and execute my purpose on earth. And that's what he's calling us to do today. He's calling you and me to fulfill the purpose to which he has called us. Though our flesh is weak, our spirit, if our spirit is willing, we can execute that purpose to which he has called us. He's calling us despite our weakness to follow him. If you say, well, look, I, I would like to, but I'm a sinner. He says, I know that. All my followers are sinners. Follow me. If you say, well, look, I'm a doubter. I'm not sure that I believe. He says, all my followers have doubted at some point. I get that. Follow me. You say, I'm scared. Jesus says, I know. I was scared too. I was terrified even to death. I know how you feel. That's all right. Follow me. But I'm a failure. I've messed up my life. All of my followers have messed up their lives. I get that. Follow me, he says. He says, I don't care that you're weak. I just want you to be willing. I don't care how weak you are. I just want you to be willing. A willing heart. I'm going to close with this. You know, my own personal story, and I've told it sometime, you know, several times here, but is, is, a, is this resonates deeply with me because I was a very willful person. I still can be. And didn't want to, didn't want to surrender. I wanted to do it my own way. I wanted to prove to everyone that I didn't need to do it like my mom or my dad or my, any, my uncles or I didn't need to do it the way God wanted me to do it. I can do it myself and I'm going to show you that. Um, and that was a dumb idea. <laughs> dumb idea. Uh, but it was a dumb idea that I maintained for about 15 years. So um, we all do this, you know. Finally, finally, after years and years of this sort of entrenched stubbornness on my part, in fact, one of the guys that, uh, one of the ministers that is now one of our um, advisors, you know, he even said to me, he said, Brent, you know, there was a point, and he's known me since I was a little kid, he said, there was a point where I really thought maybe, maybe you have just hardened so much that you can't, that you won't or can't come back. He said, we had almost gotten to that point with you where you had almost proven to us that you couldn't come back or wouldn't come back. But thank God that at some point in my life, my heart began to break and my spirit and my will began to be humbled. And at some point in my life, several years ago, I said, all right, I can't, I can't do it on my own. I'm giving it over to you. I'm surrendering my will to you. And from just the personal standpoint, I can tell you that my life has radically changed for the better by surrendering my will to God's will. Do I, am I perfect? No. Do I stumble? Yeah. Do I sometimes still buck up my shoulders and stiffen my neck? Yeah. But I have learned that over the years, the more I surrender to God, the more God blesses my life, fills my life with abundance, sets me on a path of purposefulness, strengthens me, encourages me, imbues me with power. It's, it's, it's just a radical transformation. God is calling you to, to follow him. 
He's calling you to enact the purpose to which he's called you. And the purpose to which he has called you is greater than the purpose that you are living. If you're living for self, there's a purpose that's greater for you. Much greater. Radically greater. Much more beautiful. Much more fulfilling. Much more rewarding. And Jesus is calling you to that. No matter how weak, he just asks you to be willing. So I want to encourage you today, this week, whatever it is, step into that purpose. Surrender that part of your life to God and begin to walk in the purpose to which he's called you. Amen? Though we are all weak, let us all be willing. Amen? Let's pray.